Well, friends, we are back this morning in Paul's letter to the Romans. And I will go ahead and acknowledge right now that this week's sermon, Romans 5, 6 through 11, is appropriately going to lean quite a bit on last week's message from Romans 5, 1 to 5. And so if you've not had a chance to listen to that message, if you were not here last week, I trust if you listen to it at some point this week, it may be helpful to you in even considering it alongside the message this morning. Similar to some questions that I asked us by way of introduction a week ago, I want to ask again today. Do you ever fear that you will not make it in the end? Do you have a haunting sneaking suspicion that you may be one of those who is not counted amongst the righteous in the last day? Do you feel the ups and the downs and the inconsistencies of your own life? Do you know what it is to suffer, to grieve, to lament? I ask those questions the way that I'm asking them, because I know that you all experience these things. We all experience these things. As important as any questions we could ever ask ourselves are these. How do we know that we will make it, that we will endure, that we will be finally saved? I hope that you feel it in your heart, in your mind, in your entire person. If we don't know through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we do not know that we will make it in the end, then what in the world are we doing? I hope you feel that. How would we ever have hope in the midst of doubts and wrestlings and suffering and pain? We thank God that his word is not silent on these things. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Romans chapter 5. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to be considering verses 6 to 11 from Romans 5 this morning. As you're turning uh, your way there or finding this text in your Bible app, let me make a few comments by way of where we've been in Paul's letter. It's good that we would continue week after week to orient ourselves in Paul's argumentation so that by the end of this series, we'll have a good feel and a good understanding how Paul writes and what he's conveying. You remember that he states unashamedly that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. This is because in the gospel, the righteousness that God gives to sinners apart from anything they ever do is revealed. That righteousness is received entirely by faith. Paul proves quite convincingly that this, the gospel, of our Lord Jesus Christ is the only way that a sinner could ever be reconciled to God because all human beings, Jews and Gentiles alike, are under sin and therefore could never be justified based upon their own obedience. Paul explains and he extols the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus, the God-man, has fulfilled the requirements of the law, that he has endured its curse and its penalty, and that what he did is counted to sinners. It's given, it's credited to sinners by faith. Paul then illustrates 
and demonstrates that this is how God has always saved his people by appealing to the Old Testament. He points, most of all, to Abraham. That's his appeal. Abraham, he says, was not justified by circumcision, but before. This was to make him the father of everyone who believes in Jesus, whether that person is a Greek, a Gentile, a Jew. Abraham was not justified by works of the law, but apart from them. This was to teach us how any person, any person, is justified in God's sight. It is only by faith in Jesus. As it was with Abraham, so it is with us. Therefore, beginning in Romans 5 and verse 1, because we have been justified by faith apart from works, we have peace with God. We have it through our Lord Jesus Christ now and in the future. In Christ, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Something that's true today guarantees something tomorrow. We can even rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that God is producing good things in us. Everything that we endure will contribute to our eternal good, to our salvation, and to the purposes and plans of God. So with all that by way of bringing us along and orienting our minds and hearts in the text, let's look now to God's Word. We're going to be considering verses 6 to 11 today, but we're going to read now beginning in verse 1 through 11 of Romans chapter 5. This is the Word of God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amen. We thank God for his word today and every day. My plan is pretty simple. I I want us to work our way through the text. I plan to preach it in four sections. Verse 6, then verses 7 and 8, verses 9 and 10, then verse 11. I'll try to make it plain where we are. And then after we've made our way through the text in those four parts, I have three additional points for our consideration. Let's look to the text, brothers and sisters. A connection needs to be made between verses 6 and following to what was written in verses 1 to 5 of Romans 5. 
Paul says in Romans 5.5 that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And as we considered last week, that love of God, the language is ambiguous, but what the writer, what Paul means is God's love to us, not our love that is a response to what God has done. Paul says God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And then in verses 6 and following, he's going to demonstrate God's love for us. He's going to prove it. He's going to argue for it. He's going to extol it to help us understand how deep the Father's love for us, in fact, is. So that's his objective. Let's look to verse 6. All of this peace with God and this rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God and all of these things, it's grounded in the love of God for us. How do we know that God loves us? Verse 6, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still weak, Jesus died for us while we were still unable to obey him in any sense. He died for us when we were completely unable to do anything for ourselves, salvifically speaking. We were in our inability, no doubt, sinful. That's true. But the emphasis of Paul is the fact that we were not able to do anything. Nothing that we could do that would induce God's love. That would cause Christ to come. We were unable to keep God's law when we were unable to do anything so that we might be delivered from God's wrath, Jesus came and stood in our place and died for those He came to save. In the plan of God, this occurred, as Paul says, at the right time. As he writes elsewhere to the Galatian Christians, when the fullness of time had come, what did God do? God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. As Paul writes to Timothy, there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He did not die. This is as plain as anything could be. You can see it just like me. He did not die for the godly. He didn't even die for the decent he died for ungodly people. And ungodly is a word used throughout Scripture to describe wicked people. Think back to chapter 4 and verse 5, where Paul writes, To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So it was not for those who were in any way godly or were in any way inclined to any extent to do the will of God that Jesus died. A person 
who is in any way godly on his own, or a person who is inclined to some extent to do the will of God on his own, does not exist. For all by nature are under sin. All are dead in trespasses and sins in which they walk, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, living in the cravings and the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We all are by nature children of wrath. And Christ died for such as us. Let's look to verses 7 and 8. Paul continues to extol the love of God. The love of God is astonishing. He says that one will scarcely die for a righteous person. And then he says perhaps for literally the good person, someone would dare to die in their place. Maybe. But God shows, he demonstrates, he confirms, he testifies to his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, not righteous, not good sinners, while we were still that, Christ died for us. As the Apostle John wrote, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We've said this many times. It bears repeating. If we want to know that God loves us, if we want to know that God is graciously inclined toward us, we should never look to our own circumstances We should never look to our own lives. We must look to Christ's life, his death, his resurrection. Jesus is the evidence that God loves us. Jesus is the evidence that God is gracious to us, period. Because all these other things, circumstances of this life will ebb and flow. But Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it is because God loves us because He loved us from before the foundations of the world that He sent His Son to die. I've alluded to this already at multiple points, but it's an important question to ask ourselves anytime we're studying Scripture. What is Paul doing in this whole section? Romans 5, 1-11. What's he demonstrating? What's he teaching of? Well, he's writing of what Jesus has accomplished for us while we were dead in sin and while we were enemies of God. Not his friends, his enemies. This is proof that the love of God is unrivaled. It is unparalleled in the universe. There is no love like the love of God. The love of God for us and the sufficiency of what Christ has accomplished for us are meant In the mind of the apostle, it's very clear. These things are meant to strengthen the trust and the confidence of our souls in God. God loves us in a way that does not find its equal anywhere, in anything. 
may we never question his love for us. We do. We doubt. May the Lord give us grace that we would trust his testimony and not our feelings, not our conscience. Through Christ, says Paul, we have been justified and we have been reconciled to God and so we have peace with God now and in the future. This is the Christian's joy. This is the Christian's glory. This is the Christian's freedom. This is the Christian's peace. And this is the Christian's rest. This truth, as John Calvin wrote, it would not have been enough for salvation to have been once procured for us were not Christ to render it safe and secure to the end. If what he did did not finally save us, it would not be enough for salvation. Let's turn our attention now to verses 9 and 10. In verse 9 we read, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood. Notice here that we are justified by Christ, by what Christ did in shedding His blood in the place of sinners. Paul has been using language of justification by faith apart from works. But verses like this, we're going to do more of this together in a moment. Verses like this demonstrate that it is not our faith itself that justifies. It is the object of our faith who justifies us. Namely, the person and the work of the Christ. It was essential in the plan of God that Jesus would shed his blood for us, that he would give his life. This is because God is just. And his justice is uncompromising. What kind of God would he be if he were not like that? Because God had said to Adam, who represented us all, in the day that you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely what? And so, Jesus shed his blood and entered into the holy place not made with hands. He entered there by his own blood that he had shed. He pled the merits of his blood and his life. And he did this to obtain salvation for his people who had sinned. The Father had planned this because his love for us is deep. He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. Notice too, in verse 9, let's read it again. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Do you see how, again, like we thought about last week, there is a present reality that makes something in the future equally certain. We have been justified by the blood of Christ presently. Because of that, we shall be saved by Jesus from the wrath of God finally. For God has not destined us for wrath, beloved, 
but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Put your eyes on verse 10. For if while we were enemies. Again, to double down because Paul is doubling down. If there had been any hint of willingness to obey, any hint of seeking God, any hint of love or reverence toward Him, then God's love for us would not be so astonishing. It's important that the Scriptures contain this kind of clarity because we know ourselves. We desire to do something on the front end that would induce God to save us, to begin His work in us. We desire to do that. We think we need to. And then, in an ongoing sense, we desire to be able to do something that would induce God to continue working in us. We think we need to. We thank God for the clarity of His Word, but that's not how this goes. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of Christ. Again, observe. Put your eyes in the text. Observe that the reconciliation that has taken place between God and us is through what? The death of God's Son. He needed to come and die. He needed to come and bleed for Adam's helpless race or we have no salvation. Because of our sin and our rebellion against God, there was something between us and Him. It was necessary that God be able to justly lay aside His enmity toward us. In the death of the Son of God, a sacrifice was made that satisfied the justice of God and appeased the wrath of God that we deserve. Listen to the words of the prophet Ezekiel. If you're familiar at all with Ezekiel chapter 16, you know that it is one of the most blunt, like breathtakingly direct chapters in all of Scripture in terms of how the Lord describes Israel as His faithless, adulterous wife. He says at the end of that entire section, after the Lord has said much about Israel's infidelity, God says this, I will establish my covenant with you. I'll do it. Then he says this, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for you, for all that you have done, declares the Lord. When I atone for you, for all that you have done. I'm going to establish my covenant with you. The work of the Lord Jesus Christ has removed every obstacle to our being reconciled to God. By faith, we are united to Christ. By faith, we are found in Him. The Son whom the Father loves, in whom He is well pleased. Jesus took our curse upon Himself and died under the law as a lawbreaker. He fulfilled and obeyed all of the law's requirements and with Him as our representative. 
His death is counted as our death. And his righteousness, our righteousness. And in him, we become children of God. In him, we ourselves, hear this, become the proper objects of God's love. There's no barrier. There's no boundary. In Christ, we are proper objects of God's love. This greatly pleases the Father. He delights to save sinners. What is the joy of heaven? Think Luke 15. What is the joy of heaven? It's the salvation of sinners that is the joy of the Father. That's not all, though. Again, in verse 10, we see a present future dynamic. Look at it. If while we were sinners, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We have been reconciled to God through the death of Christ presently. And now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by Christ's life finally. By his indestructible life. By his intercession for us. By his advocacy for us. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. And what's he doing? Who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus has become a high priest by the power of an indestructible life, the writer of the Hebrews says. The oath of God has appointed his son as a high priest, a son who has been made perfect forever. The former priests, were told, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in their office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Who is he? Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, beloved, hear this. If Jesus, through his death, has accomplished reconciliation between God and us, how much more so will he ensure our final salvation through his ongoing intercession and advocacy on our behalf? He will. Our salvation is as certain as Christ is alive. May that encourage your heart. Our salvation is as certain as Christ is alive. He lives, he intercedes, he advocates, he pleads, he keeps. We will 
be finally saved. And I can say that with great confidence, knowing my own frailty and knowing many of yours. Why? Because we will be finally saved, not because we will never fail Christ, but because He will never fail us. This is what it means to be in Christ. Put your eyes on verse 11. Paul says, more than that. We can keep saying more. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation, through whom we have been justified, through whom we will be finally saved. That same word rejoice could be rendered glory or boast is used in verse 2 of Romans 5. It's used in verse 3 of Romans 5. It's used in verse 11 of Romans 5. And as we have observed, friends, may this stick in our minds and hearts. If because of what presently exists, there is not a sure knowledge and certainty of the future, who would dare to glory? Who would dare to boast if... Because of what exists now, there is not a sure knowledge and a certainty about the future. Who would be crazy enough to rejoice? Who would be crazy enough to boast? Because you might not attain the thing in which you're boasting. You might not attain the thing in which you're rejoicing. You might not attain the thing in which you're glorying. There must be a certainty of the future for Paul's language to make sense. You would be a fool to rejoice in something that may never materialize. If our justification by faith has given us peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ now, but not necessarily on the last day, if we have received reconciliation with God through our Lord Jesus Christ now, but not necessarily in the future, raises some significant questions. What did Jesus fail to accomplish? If the future's in jeopardy, what did he fail to do? We couldn't sing what we just sung. We didn't sing Jesus did a lot. Jesus paid most of it. What do we sing? Paid it all. Because we know that's the truth. He did it all. His work lacked nothing. He secured everything for us. God's plan of redemption does not have holes in it. We have hope because there is nothing left for us to accomplish in order that we might be saved. And therefore, our hope is sure and infallible. Which brings us to our three additional points for the remainder of our time. Number one, this is going to be brief. The header for this one is just the witness of the Scripture regarding justification. The witness of the Scripture regarding justification. You can just listen to this. Regarding our justification, and justification is how God would look at us and declare us just. 
how he would look at us and say, righteous. The Lord is all wise in how he has inspired the scriptures. Just listen to the testimony of God's word. There is no question as to how we will be found righteous in God's sight. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Romans 3, 21 and 22. We are justified by God's grace as a gift. Romans 3, 24. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Romans 4, 5, and 6. We have now been justified by Christ's blood. Romans 5, 9. We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Romans 5, 10. We have now received reconciliation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 11. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 2, 16. We are justified in Christ. Galatians 2, 17. We are found in Him, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Philippians 3.9 In Christ, we become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Christ, the many, will be made righteous. Romans 5.19 Because of God, we are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1.30 There is no ambiguity here. By our natural connection with Adam, we are sinners. We're ruined. We're undone. But by our union with Christ, which is by faith, we are accounted perfectly righteous as having paid the debt of sin and as having fulfilled the whole law. The ground of our justification today and our final salvation on the last day is our union with Christ by faith. So that was number one. It's good sometimes to just hear God's testimony. This is how he saves. Point two. Jesus is our assurance of salvation. Jesus is our assurance of salvation. I'm not trying to be that guy, you know, like we joke sometimes in the Sunday school class, like what's the reasonable answer to every question? Jesus, right? But like all kidding aside, how do you know that you'll be saved? Finally, Jesus, that's the answer. That is the answer. We're going to be thinking about that pretty much for the rest of our time. I had a conversation this week with a dear pastor friend. He pastors in Philadelphia. He called me and he, he had asked me recently if I knew much about the only hymns, which are the hymns mainly of John Newton and then William Cooper. So we've been talking a little bit about these guys. And my, my friend was reading a good bit about William Cooper's life. So he was an English poet and an Anglican hymn writer. 
He was a friend, a companion of John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, and you, you know of him. So William Cooper, he wrote poems and he wrote hymns, a couple of which we sing. Now, they were originally written with different titles, but you know them as God Moves in a Mysterious Way and There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. William Cooper struggled mightily with mental illness. He attempted suicide at multiple points in his life. He consistently doubted his salvation and lacked assurance, and at times was even convinced that God was wrathfully inclined toward him. So my friend and I are talking about the fact that many question whether or not William Cooper was really a Christian. He says this to me. JP, did you know that like, a lot of people question whether William Cooper was even a Christian. And I said, yeah, I mean, I, I, did, I knew that. And we were talking about it because of the attempts at suicide, the mental illness, and consistent doubts about his salvation is why many people call his legitimacy into question. Well, my friend's conclusion, and I agree with him, is like, look, man, if deep struggle and wrestlings, and sighs, and tears, and fears, and doubts mean that Jesus can't save us? He's like, then why are we here? What are we doing? Because he's like, fam, that sounds like all of us. Like, Amen, brother, it does. The particular battles of William Cooper's life might not be our battles, but doubt Fear, struggling against the flesh, dark nights of the soul, sounds like all of us. If those things mean that Jesus can't save us, then sincerely, why are you here? I mean, let's just bounce and eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I hope you feel that. But as it stands, though, since therefore we've now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. That's what God said. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. That's what God said. Notice, beloved, as Paul, in Romans 5, 1 to 11, as Paul looks toward the future, and by the future, I mean the end of all things, as he looks toward the last day, the emphasis is not on anything that we will do. Not that we will bear fruit, not that we will obey, not that we will flee from sin. None of those things are the ground of our hope. They're good things. Do not hear what I'm not saying. Those are good things that God will work in us, but they are never the ground of our peace. Beloved, the ground of our peace with God and our plea when this is all over can never begin in the first person because I No, it's because He Not that I fled from sin, but because He became sin and a curse for me. 
Not because I obeyed, but because He kept the law for me. Not that I persevered, but because He shall save me from the wrath of God. Not that I believed, but because He shall save me, and He shall keep me, and He ever lives to make intercession for me. When a Christian lacks assurance, what's a very common form of counsel? So I'm talking broad, evangelical, United States kind of stuff. Broad. When a Christian lacks assurance, what's a very common form of counsel? Somebody comes to a friend and says, I just don't know that I'm legit. How how can I know that I'm going to be saved? What do other well-meaning Christians often say in that moment? Effectively, oh, brother, consider your testimony. Consider your testimony. What's that code for? Remember your experience of conversion. And look at how your life has changed. That's what that means. That's some sinking sand there to consider my experience and my life. Sinking sand. Encouraging to my soul sometimes, sure. But the rock on which I stand, never. Never. What good is that going to do when you experience the dark night of the soul? Well, here was my experience and here's how I've changed. What good is that going to do when the flaming darts of the evil one keep coming? Well, here was my experience. Here's how I've changed. What good is that going to do when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ at the end of it all? What's a good word then? It ain't your testimony. It ain't mine either. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's a better word. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flow be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. That's a better word. Point three. The header for this one is the hope of the glory of God. The hope of the glory of God. I know the the ups and downs of my own life. And I know the ups and downs of many of your lives. And so I'm, I'm hopeful in these final moments that we can consider the certain hope that we have and what that might mean for us as we live life as fallen people in a fallen On the basis of God's testimony on account of the work of Christ, we will be with the Lord. We will be His and He will be ours. This is certain because of Christ. When we know 
that peace with God has been permanently established. Not a peace that's here today and might not be here tomorrow. But when we know that peace with God has been permanently established, the hope of future glory begins to spring up. This is what we have in the midst of life in this fallen world. Now, the hope of the glory of God. And by this, I mean like eschatological, ultimate salvific realities. The hope of the glory of God. The redemption of our bodies, right? That is ours in Christ. Let's talk reasonably here. Might not make us feel better in the moment when we're going through it doesn't mean that we're just going to be happy all the time. doesn't mean that we won't suffer, like we considered last week. doesn't mean that we'll always understand everything that we endure. It doesn't mean that we won't weep our eyes out sometimes. As Zach Eswine, who's a Presbyterian minister, wrote, wisdom teaches us that tears, at their best, pay tribute to something lost that was once cherished. And it was wise to cherish it. In this life under the sun, we lose things that are genuinely good. And we lament that. A life's work can be destroyed in an instant. A healthy body breaks down so that even the simplest of tasks aren't possible at all, or at least not without much pain. We grieve as we look at the empty chair around the dinner table where one that we love once sat. We look around at what the created world has become. And there is an intense, deep longing inside of us for what it was meant to be, but isn't. The hope of the glory of God that is ours in Christ, while it might not take the pain away, might not make you feel better right now, it grounds us. In the midst of suffering, we know that God and truth remain. In the midst of pain, we know that God loves us. More than that, He's not ashamed of us. He's prepared for us a city. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes one day. And in the meantime, He spends our sorrows well. He doesn't waste them. In the midst of suffering, we know that Christ will complete His work in us. And we know that because He lives, we too shall live. The fact that God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us, is the evidence that His love is like no other. There is nothing like it in all the universe. For sinners, it is this love of God that is the surest foundation, hear me, of absolute and unlimited confidence in the Lord. We can have absolute and unlimited confidence in God because of how He loves us. For everyone who renounces his or her own righteousness and receives the righteousness of Christ, there is peace now and forever. And we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.